and welcome to it, friends. A couple minutes after one o'clock here on your CNN. It's a beauty out there. Disability Law Show and D. John Schools here hosting. And uh, my good pal, James Fireman, Sam Firu, Tamarkin, LLP. He has got all the knowledge. We'll be doing all the heavy lifting. Does every uh, every show for sure. Want to reach out to James anytime when we're not doing the show, you can do so. 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca through email, which we're going to uh, get into a bunch of uh, for sure this afternoon. And also another website, which we're going to pull from and you can use freely and anonymously anytime by disabilityquestions.com. So Jenny, hang on. We're going to get to your email here in moments. And you also have the opportunity to call the show over the next hour we'd love to uh, talk to you or text the call number 416-872-1010 as you know and if you prefer the text to route you can do that at 71010 again 416-872-1010 or text at 71010 to get us live here on the radio station we got plenty of time so uh so bring it on james brother what do you got going on for the uh the week that was bell well first you know i just gotta acknowledge it's just an absolutely gorgeous day outside which as always means, you know, people lying by the pool, cold drink, and clearly listening to the disability <laughs> law show, as one does. So that, that's my expectation. And if that describes you, then please, by all means, give us a call. Talk to us. Let us know what issues you're dealing with involving your insurance company and your disability policy. Always happy to help. So. What I'd like to start the show off with isn't so much one particular week that was, so to speak. Rather, it's more a collection of common misconceptions, things that I have been hearing fairly regularly for some time from people who want advice about their disability insurance claims. And so I thought it would be a good idea right at the top of the show just to discuss some of these common misperceptions with the process. So the first thing that we hear is that people are concerned that if they hire a lawyer and bring a claim against the insurance company, a lawsuit, that it's going to take years to resolve, which is understandable because oftentimes in different areas of law, the legal process can and does take years. I come from a personal injury background, and oftentimes that can be three, four years, if not longer, on a more complex case. Not true when we're talking about disability claims, particularly long-term disability claims. More often than not, the expectation is that we're going to resolve your case in around 10 months. The date someone calls me, or at least the date they sign the retainer, the expectation is 10 to 12 months from that date, we're going to have the case resolved. means settled with your insurance company. So that's the first thing. Now, 10 to 12 months perhaps is a little longer than people would like, but in the context of what the expectation is when you bring a lawsuit, it is actually incredibly fast. Another thing that we hear from people calling us is that they're concerned that if they were to bring a lawsuit against their insurance company, they're going to have to put their life on hold. And more specifically, they're going to have to make decisions that are serving the best interests of the lawsuit, but maybe not what they want to do. That's, in fact, not the case. And this is something that I'm very explicit about, not just on this show, but with every client that calls me, because I think it is really important for people to understand that they can and should continue to make the decisions that they feel are in their best interest. Now, often, usually, the best interests of my clients and the best interests of their lawsuit are one in the same, but that's not always the case. 
for example, let's say someone were to hire me to bring a lawsuit against their insurance company because their claim was denied. And we get a mediation date for 10 months down the road, again, within this 10 to 12 month time frame that I just mentioned a moment ago. And we start the claim and we get a mediation date 10 months down the road. And then maybe three, four months after we start the claim, maybe the person has a new doctor or a new treatment, whatever it is, they start feeling better. And they think, okay, well, I have to wait before I go back to work until after the claim is resolved. Not true. Absolutely untrue. If you are feeling better, and more importantly, if you have a discussion with your doctors and they say you're medically fit to return to work, you can and should return to work or at least attempt to. You know, you won't know whether you're going to be able to return or not, of course, until you give it a try. But certainly, if you are feeling better, if you're feeling optimistic, and if your doctors agree that it is worthwhile to try, then you absolutely should. Now, that will, of course, have an impact on any lawsuit because part of what you're claiming for against the insurance company is for benefits that might be owed into the future. And if you're able to return to work successfully, you're obviously not going to be entitled to any benefits from after the date that you return to work. But it doesn't mean that you don't have a claim anymore. You're still going to be entitled to whatever benefits you were owed from the date that benefits ought to have been paid until you return to work. So just to be very clear, it's not at all the case that you cannot return to work or that you have to put your life on hold in any way. Not true at all. Another thing people worry about is the process itself. People have the misconception that starting a lawsuit against a disability insurer is necessarily going to be a very involved process, that it is going to take up a lot of their time and, more importantly, a lot of their energy, particularly their mental energy. Now, I can't promise anyone that starting the lawsuit is going to relieve stress, but I can tell you that it is often the case that it does. And you may be wondering, how can that possibly be? How can starting a lawsuit against an insurance company actually relieve stress? Well, here's how. When we are retained by any client who's got a dispute against their insurer, the first thing we do is we write to the insurer and let them know that we've been retained and that from that moment onwards, all communication has to go through my office. They cannot contact you directly anymore. They're not allowed to. So that's the first thing. You're not going to have to deal directly with your insurance company anymore. That in and of itself is an enormous relief for many of our clients. But the other part of it is the level of involvement is surprisingly little. There is surprisingly little required of most people in the process from the date they sign the retainer. Now, there are some cases where there is what's called an examination, which is conducted by the other lawyer that can take a couple of hours. And in some cases, the insurer might ask you to be examined by one of their doctors. But those are more the exception than the rule. I would say probably about one in four cases has either of those things happen. For the vast majority of the people that start this process, the next thing that they do after they sign the retainers, they go to the mediation. And that's going to be prepared by my office. And so it isn't a case where starting the process is going to require them to be involved on a day-to-day -day basis or have them running, jumping through hoops and running around trying to gather documents. We take care of all of that. So it isn't something that is going to take up a lot of your time 
or mental energy. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to know what's going on. You're always going to be informed about the process. Anytime there's any development in your case, you're going to know. But it isn't something that will require you to be thinking about it on a day-to-day basis and to be working on trying to resolve it. That's what you hire a lawyer for. That's what my job is. You know, your job as a client is very simple. It is to concentrate on your treatment and rehabilitation. And you will know what's going on, but you're not going to be required to deal with it. Another another issue that people often have is they say, okay, well, that's all well and good, James, but what's the point? The insurer's not going to change their mind anyway. And that's really understandable because when you're dealing with an insurance company as an individual and you see the way they respond to new information from your doctors, that clearly shows that you're disabled and they just don't seem to care. It's quite understandable that someone would reach the conclusion that what's the point? They're never going to come to the table and be reasonable. The point is that when you're dealing with them on your own, when you haven't brought a lawsuit, there is nothing that compels them to be reasonable with you. There is no consequence for them to ignore you and to pretend as though you're able to go back to work. The difference when you hire a lawyer and bring a lawsuit is that if they maintain that posture, if they continue to be obstinate and pretend that there is nothing wrong, then at the end of the day, they would wind up in front of a judge who's going to look at them sideways and say, what the heck have you been doing? Very clearly, the treating doctors are all telling you that this person is disabled. How can you possibly be ignoring them? And then they risk not only having to pay the benefits, but also having to pay punitive damages on top because of the way that they have adjudicated the claim, that they've been unfair. And they do not want that. And so because of that, when you hire a lawyer and bring a legal claim, all of a sudden they're very reasonable when they come to the table. The other thing that we hear, and I think we're almost at the break, but this is sort of the the last misconceptions, people are concerned that it's going to be really expensive, that they're going to have to pay a ton of money out of pocket. I can tell you that this is true, not just for my firm, but for virtually any firm that does this kind of disability work. Any lawyer that is doing disability work is going to do it on what we call a contingency fee basis. And what that means is that you don't pay anything up front. You shouldn't be asked to pay for expenses as it goes along either. The lawyer gets paid as a percentage of what's recovered at the end. And so if you have a good case, then a disability lawyer working on a contingency fee is going to be interested and is going to be prepared to take on your case without you having to pay anything out of pocket, knowing that at the end of the case, they'll get paid as long as it's successful. And so because of that, people who are in the situation of having been denied benefits or having their benefits cut off, who aren't getting any income, from their job and who can't afford to pay a lawyer an hourly rate or some big upfront retainer are able to hire a lawyer to bring a claim without being out of pocket, without having to add to the financial stress that they're already in. And with that amazing opener, we'll take a short break and in your emails. Again, it all says that you can call uh, here anytime for the remainder of the hour and talk to us with any questions. James, obviously, ready to answer those. 416-872-1010 is how you do that. Text as well if you prefer that way. That is 71010 as we continue here on a lovely Saturday, the Disability Law Show. Hang on. 
Hey, we are back. It is one twenty. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, for hanging in. You have an opportunity now for the rest of the hour to call in and ask your questions. Could be uh, anonymously or for a friend, family member who's been dealing with a disability insurer. Uh, don't hold back. Get some questions. Uh, get some answers anyway from James here. 416-872-1010. Or you can text as well. That would be 71010. And email help at disabilityrights.ca. Okay. First one, Jenny, as uh, as promised. Guys, been watching the show, TV show, by the way. Uh, you can go to uh, ST Lawyers or San Firo to Mark and LLP. Drop down menu, the Knowledge Center. You'll see links to our long-running TV show starring James as well. Anyway, Jenny says, I've watched your TV show, but I haven't seen your answer to this question. When an individual has been placed on maintenance by the insurance company after years on LTD, will they ever offer a buyout of the LTD payments? I am aware they will pay LTD payments monthly until the age of 65 generally, but will and can the insurance company buy an individual out? Love that question. Yeah, me too. And I, I love that you you noted that I'm starring on the TV show. That's right. Of course. Yes, I, you, you wouldn't believe how many times people stop me in the street <laughs> and ask me for my autograph as the star of the disability launching. That's but right. I, <laughs> um, on more serious matters, uh, Jenny's question about the buyout. So it does happen. It does happen on occasion where an insurer will have someone who they suspect is likely going to be permanently disabled from work, where they know that they're not really going to get out from under the policy and they're probably going to have to pay out until age 65. In those situations, it will happen that some insurers will look at the file and make a decision whether or not they want to try and buy out the remaining years. Now, if they do that, they're only going to do it on a basis that they feel is better for them than the alternative which is the likely having to pay out benefits until age 65. Again, if we're talking about someone who is almost certainly going to be permanently disabled until age 65, the only way they get out from under that is if there's some miracle cure or if the person happens to die before they're 65. And so in those situations, an insurer will look at it and say, okay, rather than having to pay this stream of monthly benefits for the next say 10 years which if we were to run it through the present value calculator would be worth three hundred thousand dollars today we'll offer the person a lump sum of $175,000, saving you know $125,000 over the long run and giving the person a lot of money in their pocket now or something to that effect. That's the way that the logic works. And so, yeah, it'll happen sometimes. When it does, you can be sure that the insurance company is only doing it because they feel it is better for them mm-hmm. to yep. do it. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't consider it either, because you know the simple fact that it's better for the insurance company doesn't necessarily mean it's not also better for you. It can be both, but you just have to understand what it means, what you're giving up, and what you're gaining from. Certainly, in any scenario where they're proposing that, it's going to give you a lot more money in your pocket today than you would have if you just kept collecting the monthly benefits. But you're also going to undoubtedly be giving up a lot of benefits tomorrow, years from now down the road, and certainly by the time that you reach 65. And so it is really important that you speak with someone and you understand exactly what that means. We all, all of the lawyers at Sevier Tamarkin have a tool that we use in order to figure out the present value of the future benefits. 
And so that's a number we can come to really quickly if we just understand what the monthly benefit is and what your age is. We can figure that out and give you a, this is what it would be in today's dollars sort of a comparison. It's undoubtedly going to be less money that they're offering than what you would get. The question becomes, is it worth it? Because there is a benefit of course. Getting the money now up front would allow you to be able to get whatever treatment that you want. If there is a particularly expensive treatment that you've been holding off on because you can't afford to do it and your insurance company won't pay for it, this gives you the freedom to do that. The other thing it does is it allows you to completely disengage with your insurance company. In these types of settlements, you're going to sign what's called a full and final release, Mm -hmm. severing any ongoing relationship with that insurance company, meaning they don't have any interest in what you're doing in the future and you don't have any interest in them. And so if they've paid you what is the equivalent of, let's say, six years of benefits, as opposed to the 10 you might otherwise be entitled to, that doesn't mean that you can't go back to work for the next six years. You can do whatever you want at that point. If they have paid you out on a full and final basis, and three years from now, your health improves to the point that you can return to work, then you can return to work. You don't owe them anything. That's the whole point of it, that you're settled. And the other really nice thing is that even if you're in this situation where you have what is almost certainly a permanent disability and the insurer is paying you out, At the very least, they are going to be checking in with you probably at least once a year, maybe twice a year, and asking for updates from your doctors and perhaps asking you to fill out forms. That's on the low end. If it's anything short of a very clear permanent disability, you can bet that they're going to be much more involved, that they're going to be asking for much more frequent updates, that they may be sending you to their doctors for assessments, calling you on a fairly regular basis, perhaps monthly or more frequently. And so in those situations, there can be a very large benefit to just being done with the insurance company, to not having them in your life anymore. I don't know what the value of that is going to be for any particular individual, but there is a value to that. And so the process isn't just looking at what the dollars are. It's not just looking at, okay, well, it would be worth more if I played this out and rejected their offer until 65. You also have to factor in the value to you of getting the money early and of not having to deal with that insurance company anymore. And those aren't really legal questions. Those are personal questions that each individual has to answer. And I can't put a value on that because it isn't a legal concept. It's something that is very specific to each individual. But as long as you understand the difference in the actual money from each option, and you understand what the difference is in terms of what you're going to have to do in the future, you can make a much better decision if that happens. Now, the reality is, though, this is more the exception than the It is unusual for insurers to approach people with a buyout, but by no means unheard of. And so I'll just come to this. If your insurer has approached you with a potential buyout, give us a call. It doesn't cost you anything. We're happy to give you our advice to let you know what the future stream of your monthly benefits would be worth in today's dollars so that you can make that comparison. And you know, you'll decide then where, when you, whether you want to accept their deal or not. But always approach it with caution and recognize that the insurance company is in every scenario acting from self-interest. Let me ask you this as we uh, a couple of minutes away from a break. What if you turn the tables around? What if it's you approaching the uh, insurer for that bio? Does that put a target on your back? 
That's a really good question. So people ask me this. They ask whether or not it's something that they can viably do. I strongly encourage people to not do that. If you approach your insurance company and ask them for a buyout, they are likely to interpret it in one of two ways. They are likely going to either think that you are doing a lot better and are about to go back to work and are just looking to cash in, Mm -hmm. or they will believe that you are in such financial peril that you would take anything that they offer just because you need more money now. In either of those scenarios, your insurance company is going to have all of the leverage. And you better believe that if they think that you are vulnerable, they're never going to offer you anything close to the fair value. They're never going to in the first place. They're always going to do it in a manner that is going to serve their interests. But if they think that you're vulnerable, the offer that they would put, if anything at all, is going to be considerably less than they would otherwise. So I would strongly discourage anyone from approaching their insurance company and suggesting that they do a buyout. It is very unlikely to end up well. And with that, we'll get into a short break and flip over to mydisabilityquestions.com for our, our next question. you got some time still, uh, the hour, the remaining hour, of course, to uh, call us here live on air, 416-872-1010, or text your questions as well. We can read those out. That is 71010 as we continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Hang on. Welcome back indeed. 135 Saturday, James Fireman, Sam Fear to Mark and LLP to reach out anytime to James and his team to have that chat on your own time. 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And you can also ask your questions at mydisabilityquestions.com. But here live uh, for the remaining uh, part of the hour here on the radio station, you can call 416-872-1010, the call in number to get on live, and 71010 for text. Moving on down to Stuart. Uh, next uh, question up, James says, guys, I'm on short-term disability paid by my company. I'm suffering from severe anxiety and depression. Could insurance deny my LTD, long-term disability, if they can confirm that my illness is hereditary? My illness started after a long period of being bullied and harassed by a co-worker, but the severity of my illness has not reduced even now that I am off work. I have many cases of severe mental disorders in my close relatives, and I'm worried that if they deny me going on LTD, if I'm still not well and maxed out on the duration for STD. Thank you. What do you think, Phil? It's an interesting question, Stuart. So the short answer is probably not. In fact, almost certainly not. The cause of whatever disability is preventing you from working in virtually all cases doesn't matter. There's a couple of exceptions, but it isn't something that we tend to be overly concerned with. Whether your disability is caused by Uh, your genetics, your environment by an accident, none of these things would disentitle you to be able to to approval for your long-term disability policy. The exception is really only where there is a pre-existing exclusion and you are within the first year of working at your, your employer under a group disability policy. So let me expand on that just a little bit so everyone can understand what I'm talking about. When you are under a new disability policy, particularly in a group plan, there's going to be a provision in almost all policies that will say, if in the first year of coverage, usually the first year after you start working for your new employer, you become disabled, and that disability is the result of something that had 
been an issue for you in the past, mm-hmm. then the pre-existing exclusion would apply. Now, sometimes it isn't so broad. Sometimes it's not just a matter of whether it's something that had been an issue for you at any point in your life. You know, if you had um, suffered from whatever the disability is when you were 10 years old and hadn't had anything in 20 years, that might be an issue in some policies, but other policies will say only if you've had treatment for it within the three months before you became insured, is it an issue that would trigger this pre-existing exclusion. And so it is a narrow exception to what I'm talking about here where we're not concerned about the cause of your disability. And in any case, if your disability arises sometime after you've been employed for more than a year, it almost certainly won't matter anyway. All of this is a very long-winded way of saying, Stuart, it really shouldn't matter that the anxiety and depression you're talking about is something that you believe to be hereditary, something that is at least, at the very least, an issue with your immediate family. As long as it's not occurring in the first year of your employment, and as long as, if so, it isn't something that you were dealing with in the past, then it really doesn't matter at all. And it really sometimes is not the case, James, where it's it's not so much uh, worried about heredity thing, the fact that it's a mental illness. We, we've talked about this before. If it doesn't show up on an X-ray or an MRI or CT scan, sometimes it ruffles some feathers with the insurance company and they could give you a little bit of a hard time that way. Sure. And it's really I, I ought to spend a little more time talking about mental health uh, claims when they do arise because you're quite right. They unfortunately are still not treated the same way that physical claims are. No, we're better about it. This mm-hmm. isn't, you know, the society, society isn't what it was 20 or 30 years ago when someone would say that they have depression or anxiety and people would say, oh, it's all in your head. There's nothing really wrong with you. It isn't as though those types of sentiments don't exist anymore, but they are rarer and they are usually something that people know at least enough not to say out loud anymore. Unfortunately, it is still something that we see residue of in the insurance companies. And what I mean by that is it is quite clear when we look at the rates at which people are approved for disability claims for mental health issues versus physical issues, they are quite different. If you have a mental health issue, it is a more difficult path. That doesn't mean you shouldn't apply. And it doesn't mean that the insurer is going to deny you out of the gate. There are certainly mental health claims that that insurance companies will approve immediately. That does happen. Uh, But it is usually the case where if it's only in a very clear uh, mental health claim where there is an, an obvious triggering event, or a very long history of mental health issues uh, where the treatment has been uh, getting progressively more significant over time, where the insurer is prepared to accept it, where there is new mental health issues that are arising, particularly where they're not the result of a specific traumatic event. We see very commonly insurers will reject those claims initially, and then it becomes a fight. It is still a fight worth having if you are... If you are depressed, if you're suffering from anxiety, if you're not able to work because of your mental health, whether this is a new thing or not, you should be bringing that claim. That is what you are entitled to, whether you're paying out of pocket or whether it is a benefit from your employment. It is something that you are paying for in one way or another. And if you're paying for it, then you're entitled to it if you are disabled. 
It's as simple as that. So don't be bullied into not applying or don't be too afraid to put the application is because you're worried about the response. If the response is a no, that's what I'm here for. And with that, we'll move down to Paulo's uh, email. It says, guys, I was asked to fill out a form with my work experience, et cetera, and include a resume by my insurance after being on LTD for almost six months with a herniated disc, pressing against my sciatic nerve, causing extreme pain from my lower back all the way down to my foot. The health system, very slow. I've had an MRI and finally spoke to a neurosurgeon, which suggested uh, trying steroid epidural injections at the site of the hernia. I'm waiting for a call to get that done. My case agent says it's necessary for phase two of disability after six months. Is that a scare tactic or it's true that they can put me in in any job they think I can do? All right, let's clarify some things that are happening here. So the first thing that we need to understand is the framework for the disability process. When you apply for disability benefits, long-term disability benefits, there's typically a waiting period of either three, four, sometimes six months before your benefits would kick in, before the first payments would start. Sometimes there are short-term disability benefits during that time, sometimes not. During the first two years from the date benefits become payable, we refer to that as the own occupation period. And the reason we do that is because virtually all policies the test during that own occupation period will be whether or not you are disabled from doing your own occupation. After two years, we refer to that up until age 65. After two years, age 65, that is the any occupation period. And that's because at that two-year mark from the date where benefits became payable, two years later, the test changes to whether you have a disability that prevents you from doing any occupation you're qualified for by training, education, or experience. Now, there is a whole lot more we could get into. There is a requirement that it pays you commensurate income after those two years, but that is the way the policies work. After the two years, they can cut your benefits off if they can show that you are able to work in any other occupation that pays a commensurate income. And so as part of the process, after you've been approved for benefits during those first two years, during the own occupation period, the insurer will quite properly start to gather information about your education, your training, and your experience. And certainly part of that is your resume. Now, none of this means that they can force you to do another job. No one's going to come to your house and put a gun to your head and say, Paulo, you better go do this job or, (laughs) well, I don't have to finish that sentence. That's obviously not going to happen. But your choice is going to be either you go find some other occupation if you can't return to your own job or you don't. But the insurance company is telegraphing that they may well decide that they, at the two-year mark, you are, in their view, able to do some other occupation, and they're going to stop paying your benefits. Paulo, appreciate that. For more details, you know how to reach out, which you'll probably want to have that conversation with James and his team, 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. You know that email address. We'll uh, take a short break and continue with more of the Disability Law Show, 416-872-1010. Right back. And welcome back to it. Still a few minutes to go. So you guys still have some time to chime in on the phone. You want to call us 416-872-1010. Email help at disabilityrights.ca to reach James and his team anytime or phone them as well. 1-855-821-5900. Here's a uh, email from Don James. It's a short one. Simply says, uh, guys, can you answer on your show how you address conflicting medical reports? What do you think? 
Well, you know, sometimes I, I like getting very detailed questions where all of the questions I might have are already answered and they're there for me. But other times I kind of like people like Don who are just like, here's just this issue. Tell me what happens. So what I can say is that Don's question is so brief. That I'm not entirely sure the context he's asking about the conflicting medical reports. There are two that come to mind. And so I'm going to do my best to address both of them. One of those is probably, I think, what Don is getting at, where there is a medical report from one of your treating doctors, and then there is a conflicting medical report from someone who's done an assessment, probably hired by your insurance company. And one says you're disabled at the end of the day. One says not. Presumably, it's your treating doctor saying you're disabled. The insurer's doctor says you're not. So what happens in that case? Well, it, it isn't as though it's automatic that one wins over the other, but common sense invariably will prevail. And so if a judge is looking at this in a trial, and please keep in mind, long-term disability cases almost never get that far, but we have to think about that. What would happen if the case went to trial? Because that's how we figure out what a case is worth. And so if a judge were looking at two conflicting medical reports, one from a doctor who has seen you on one occasion for a couple of hours, who has been hired by an insurance company who is obviously looking for justification to be able to terminate benefits. And this doctor is aware of that and has come to the conclusion that you are not disabled from work. And the other report is from your treating doctor, someone who presumably you've seen on at least more than one occasion, perhaps over the course of several years, who is well acquainted with your history, who is not being paid directly by anyone involved in the case, and you know who doesn't really have any particular bias one way or the other. Who is a judge going to believe? Whose opinion is going to carry more weight? It's clearly in most situations going to be the treating doctor. Now, that's not always the case. There are certainly situations where a judge might think that the doctor is being more of an advocate. Uh, that's rare, but it can happen if a doctor seems to be going out of their way to try and help the person with their disability claim and is clearly disregarding obvious facts in the medical file in order mm -hmm. to come to what they think is a helpful conclusion. That's something that a judge will notice, of course, but that's usually pretty rare. It can also very well be the case where the doctor who's providing the supportive opinion, the treating doctor, is perhaps your family physician, and the doctor hired by the insurance company is a specialist and perhaps a well-respected specialist in the particular area where your disability is relevant. And so in, the, in that situation, a judge might say, well, you know, it's true that this, this doctor hired by the insurers hasn't been treating you and hasn't known you for a period of time, but they do have... Uh, expertise that is easier for the court to rely on than perhaps that of your family physician who probably doesn't have specialized expertise in that particular area. That doesn't mean that the doctor hired by the insurer wins, but when the judge is weighing the two opinions, that's going to be a factor that affects the weight that the judge will give to one doctor versus another. But I would say about 95% of the time, it's going to be resolved in favor of the treating doctor. And it is unusual 
or an insurance company to pay what needs to be paid to hire an expert that is going to not only specialize in the relevant area of medicine, but also be perceived as someone whose expertise is unimpeachable, someone who is so well-known and highly regarded that they're unlikely to be questioned by another doctor or even by the court. It, you know, it, short of that is usually the treating doctor who is going to know. The other scenario where Don's question might be relevant is if the conflict arises between medical reports from two treating doctors. So you have one treating doctor saying that they have this particular illness and that they're disabled and another treating doctor saying, I can't find anything or it's mild and they're not disabled. Mm. What would be unusual, though, is if both of those doctors are coming from the same perspective, if they are both specialists in the same area. Typically speaking, your family doctor is going to be the one who is making sure that you're referred to all of the appropriate specialists. And unless someone retires or there's a subspecialty that needs to be addressed, typically speaking, the referrals are going to be one for each particular possible area of medicine that's relevant. There might be one referral for uh, an orthopedic surgeon, one referral for a rheumatologist, one referral for a psychiatrist, all with different spheres of expertise that are separate from one another. There may be some overlap, but they're all coming at it from a different perspective. When there's a conflict between those reports, it doesn't really worry me so much. For example, if we have the orthopedic surgeon saying, well, I'm looking at these x-rays here and there's clear evidence of severe degenerative disc disease and this is going to affect the person in this way or that way, and therefore, from a physical perspective, this person is disabled from work. And then you have a report from a psychiatrist saying, well, there's some evidence of depression and perhaps anxiety, but it doesn't rise to the level of a disabling condition. Right. Those aren't those aren't conflicting with each other. Those are just two different opinions from different areas of medicine that are coming to a different result. But that doesn't mean that you're just because your psychiatrist says you're not disabled from work from a psychiatric perspective, that it negates what your what your orthopedic surgeon is saying. They are completely different. You can be completely disabled from working just because of physical or just because of psychological or psychiatric. If both of them are saying that, then obviously your position is that much stronger. But it's certainly not required that every treating doctor that you come in contact with is going to be able to say that you're disabled from work. In fact, it's very often the case where someone has an underlying condition that isn't automatically understood, where the person is going to be referred to any number of different specialists. And many of those are going to come up empty. They're going to say, you know, we did our usual tests and we didn't find anything. So I don't think their problem is with orthopedics or with psychiatric or what have you. Yeah. And the, the family doctor will take that information in and look to see whether there is another appropriate area of medicine that a referral can be made to. And as long as there is, then hopefully you'll follow up and get a referral somewhere else and eventually come to an understanding of what it is that is that is underneath that condition and how to treat that. But just because you have one doctor saying you're disabled and another doctor, particularly if they're in a different discipline, saying that you're not, that doesn't mean that there's a conflict and it certainly wouldn't prevent you from being entitled to your benefits.
Don, we hope that small question got a big answer. I hope that really helped. I'm sure it did, pal. You can always uh, move on and reach out to James's team. Now that we're done for the uh, for the hour, that number, 1-855-821-5900. The email address we always go to is help at disabilityrights.ca. You can simply go to the website, disabilityrights.ca as well. And for any other questions, mydisabilityquestions.com. It's free. It's anonymous. And we'll catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. 